Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hello. <laughs> I had neglected to push a very special button, uh, which is why you haven't been able to hear me. You can hear me now, right? Um, <laughs> okay. So there's been this voice in my head for, to some degree, it's been in my head ever since Election Day of 2020. And maybe it's been in my head since Election Day of 2016. It's actually from the movie Michael Clayton. You know, George Clooney plays a fixer for a law firm, and he's sent out to handle a hit and run by one of the term one of the firm's prosperous clients, played by the wonderful character actor O'Hare. And O'Hare's character, whose name is I think I have it here somewhere, Mr. Greer. Mr. Greer is not satisfied with the service that he's getting, and he says. You know, the senior partner of the law firm said he was sending me a miracle worker. And George Clooney's Michael Clayton says, well, he misspoke. And Mr. And Mr. Greer says, about what? That you're the firm's fixer or that you're any good at it? <laughs> and it's that voice that I hear, that kind of withering voice. Because in 2016, we, who, we journalists who cover politics, we didn't understand a lot of things, and we hoped that we understood things better in 2020, and I think we did. And But one of the tools we use to understand things better, I mean, part of our job is to figure out what's going on. You can say that is our job, to figure out what's going on. And one of the things that we use are polls, and polls uh, are, are complicated. One of the things I tell my classes when I teach this is think of a poll like a rotisserie chicken. You know, you don't just like take a couple of bites of the chicken. You you pull the whole chicken apart, right? You know, and once you've sort of gotten to the most obvious parts of the chicken, then maybe you dig a little deeper and you find little nuggets, you know, in the backbone or a little meat between the ribs or something. And you kind of have to do that with polling. You really have to look at cross tabs and kind of see where the polling goes and what's there and what isn't. And um, and, and people don't do that. But there's also another problem with polling, which is that I think it's sort of fair to say, although it will be debated, that a lot of it was inadequate this time. I'm trying to, I'm trying to avoid the term wrong. But the, the things that have been said uh, have been things like polling is broken. Polling is in the tank for the Democrats. You hear that a lot from conservatives and that polling was uh, actively trying to discourage Republican voters from from showing up at the polls by basically characterizing the race as a lost cause. You hear that our brains don't, don't know how to interpret the data that we're given. We don't understand that a 71% chance of winning still leaves, you know, an enormous territory of losing. 
you know, it's basically saying that almost a third of the time uh, that person would lose under these circumstances. Uh, the polling may de decrease turnout generally. Polling causes people to do things they would not otherwise do and say things they would not otherwise say. For example, FBI Director James Comey eventually admitted he went public late in the race with Clinton's 11th hour email, kind of wave of second uh, email revelations, because she he thought she had it locked up. He didn't think this would be uh, a big switch. So we've got some terrific guests here to talk today about polling. Uh, and we, we are going to begin with David Shore, an independent data analyst who formerly worked with the 2012 Obama campaign and Civis Analytics. Uh, a little bit later, we'll talk to David Greenberg. Not every guest is named David however, a professor of history and of journalism and media studies at Rutgers uh, University. We're going to talk about the history uh, of polling. And then probably the biggest kind of surprise, I guess what you would say, uh, was the Hispanic vote, the Latino vote uh, in, in this election. It just went much more heavily for Trump than had been anticipated, at least by an awful lot of polls. And we'll deal with that with a journalist who specializes in covering uh, Latino communities and especially the U.S. southern border. So so here we go. Uh, David Shore, welcome to our show. Honor to be here. So where to begin? Um, I guess, you know, one of the most salient questions is how far were polls from reality? I mean, I've heard lots of different versions of this. Uh, you know, I mean, even even the two Nates don't agree. Nate Cohn says the polls were really bad this time uh, and, and deserve more criticism than the 2016 polls uh, do. Uh, Nate Silver has a little bit more of a shoot the wounded and declare victory quality saying, you know, three and a half to four percent polling errors are the norm. This thing had three and a half to four percent polling errors. Uh, it falls within the thick part of the probability curve. What is what is everybody kicking about? So, you know, where do you where do you come? down on this kind of fairly large question well you know I, I i hate it when the when the nates fight but, i know it's, it's like mom and dad yeah but uh I, I i'll just say it's helpful you know just to put numbers on things i think that you know nate silver uh is right in that historically polls have been very bad and i think a lot of the shock that people had in 2016 and also in 2020 is that the polls were basically unusually right in 2008 and 2012. And that was like kind of the start of Nate Silver's career. Uh, but the fact that polls have always have always been fairly bad, uh, it used to not matter because elections are a lot closer than they used to be. If you go through and look at the top, you know, top 10 closest elections in the last 200 years, uh, most of them have been in the last 20 years. Uh, and so because of that, suddenly it really matters a lot. Like if you get, you know, Ronald Reagan uh, wins, uh, you know, 49 states, it doesn't really matter whether the polls are off by three or 4%, but now it really matters a lot more. And, you know, the last thing I'll say is just to, to say, put numbers on these differences. Uh, the average error for uh, Senate polling was about 3.5% in support. And so that means about seven, they overestimated the Democratic margin by about seven points on average. And for presidential, that was something like six points. These are big numbers. I think everybody came into uh, 2020 not putting error bars of that size, and they kind of came out in a different world that they expected. And I think that's definitely true. So um, that being the case, 
Well, I mean, first of all, we should back up and say, you know, that we need to talk about the presidential race probably a little bit differently than the congressional races. Uh, and that, once again, to go the Nate Silver route, he would say, look, our narrative was that Biden was the favorite because he could survive polling errors. His his margin was big enough so that even if there were a polling error comparable to 2016 or maybe even a little bit worse, he'd be OK. That's exactly what happened. And that uh, a system that predicts the winner uh, pretty uh, accurately uh, is is a good system. I, I don't. Do you go along with that part? I, I I don't. I think the reality is that if Biden had done half a point worse, uh, he would have lost. We came very close to losing, and I think when people talk about these polling errors, you know, it wasn't just that we did three points worse than expected. It's that we did worse in the same states. There's been this consistent pattern of public polling, overestimating Democratic chances in these working class white areas like West Virginia, like Ohio, like uh, Iowa, like Michigan, and underestimating or, 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 you know, not at least in relative terms, you know, strength in places like Georgia. And this, these errors have kept happening again and again and again. They happened in 2016. People don't realize, but they actually did happen in 2018. You know, Democrats won anyway, and, and so people didn't really notice. But if you look at the public polls in places like the West Virginia Senate race, the Michigan Senate race, the Ohio Senate race, they all ended up considerably closer. There are these great scatter plots. And so if you see this consistent state-by-state -state bias, I think it's very reasonable to, to say, well, why, why does this keep happening? Why, why has this happened three times in a row? That's not a coincidence. Right. Although, so there was an effort, right, to fix it through uh, some re-weighting, and particularly with that idea of non-college educated white voters, uh, that they were uh, undercounted up or under, under-polled. Um, that, that didn't fix it. So, so did something else go wrong this time? Or did the same set of problems repeat itself? I think that there were two separate problems. In 2016, the national polls weren't off by very much. I think it was off by one point. Uh, but state by state, there, were, there was this clear pattern of misses, of you know, underestimating uh, support and uh, overestimating Democratic support in these working class white areas. And in 2020, we had that same problem. We did have this state statewide, state-by-state state pattern of error that was identical to 2018 and 2016, but also the national polls were off by, uh, you know, six points. And so uh, we, we didn't just repeat the same problems as last time. We also introduced some new problems, uh, which, you know, uh, is, is great. <laughs> well, I mean, some people would say there are problems that were difficult to anticipate. We should probably start with COVID-19. So, you know, that one of the theories is, okay, so the people who were home answering the phone, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of this has to do with who answers polls, who responds to polls, and, and that there were maybe two things that might have skewed the results this time. One of them was COVID-19, people were at home and probably even a little bit bored and underutilized, uh, and they might have been more willing to cooperate with a poll and get through the phone screen 
Marines uh, on a pole. But those people were maybe kind of quote unquote knowledge workers who probably skewed Democrat by quite a bit. So they might have been over polled under those circumstances. And then the the uh, uh, the kind of parallel argument is that Democrats were very, very engaged and very, very passionate about getting Trump out of office this time. And, and that made them also tend to over respond to polls, tend to get overcounted as a result. What do you do with those uh, two arguments? I, I think they're exactly right. We we have ways of confirming this uh, in the industry. You know, the firm uh, that I worked at, you know, we've done a lot of surveys uh, over the past year. But in the surveys, you know, we ask people their uh, personal information. Uh, they end up getting compensated for it. And we can join them to voter files, which contain a lot of, you know, administrative information about partisanship, stuff like whether or not you voted in the last Democratic primary. And something that we saw was for most of 2019, uh, the percentage of phone res- of, uh, of survey respondents who were Democratic primary voters, you know, hovered at a pretty constant rate around 12 percent. And then suddenly around March, uh, you know, starting in March, it skyrockets uh, to something like 16 or 17 percent and stays at that elevated level for you know, the rest of the of the cycle. And I think that really points to this COVID theory. I think, you know, obviously time series analysis is hard. It also coincides with, you know, this Super Tuesday and the start of the primary. And I think the other thing we've seen, and this is, you know, some fresher information as of yesterday, is that we finally have vote history back in Georgia. This isn't really super well known, but you can actually, the government tells you who votes and who doesn't vote. It's publicly available. It just takes some time to process. And Georgia has released this information. And so what we saw is it's not just that uh, Democrats uh, started answering the phone at higher rates. It's also that the Democrats who did pick up the phone were more likely to vote. With I think when people look at, uh, at the polls, there was a turnout miss. I think it's, it's kind of clear if you look at precinct results and actually now at these voter file results that among the overall population, Republicans voted at higher rates than Democrats. But when you looked among these surveys, Democrats said that they were a lot more likely to vote uh, than Republicans. Everyone was anticipating this wave Democratic uh, election uh, in terms of turnout, and it didn't materialize uh, because it turned out that it wasn't just that Democrats were answering the phone at higher rates, but also that they were more enthusiastic than the people than the Democrats who you know weren't picking up. And so this ended up giving folks a skewed sense of both support uh, and and turnout. Let's play a a cut from Frank Lentz. Frank Lentz is a longtime Republican skewing uh, research, um, sort of political researcher. Uh, He is actually from this area, grew up not too far from where I'm sitting right now. I also have to mention that for some reason about people. But anyway, here's Frank Lentz talking about this. They claim that they now do greater samples in rural communities. They claim that they have balanced their uh, interviewing techniques. But clearly that is not the case. And, and part of this is that you have to go out and talk to these people beyond just an interview. Mm-hmm. What all a poll is, it's a computerized mechanism that allows you to collect data of how people think, but it doesn't tell you how they feel, and it doesn't explain why. So re- react to that. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I was, I was uh, unmuted. Yeah, so <laughs> I... Uh, Technical problems. Yeah, I, I, I actually really disagree with that. Uh, I, I do think there are very real problems with polling. And I'm not going to personally single out Frank Lutz, but I, I do think that there are a lot of people who sell focus groups, who sell qualitative research, who say, you know, the polls were wrong. And the reason why the polls were wrong is someone might 
you know, someone might call you and they might say uh, that they, they're going to vote for Biden. But if you could really see them face to face, they would go, you'd see that they were like hesitating. And then, you know, your ethnographic researcher could really look at them and press them and then decide, you know, decide that they're not actually a, a Biden voter. They're actually a Trump voter. And that's, uh, that's like the fancier version of the shy Trump uh, voter theory that people talk about. And the problem is that that just isn't why the polls were wrong. I'm, I'm not a robot. I think qualitative research is great. I, I think talking to human beings about politics is like a very useful thing to do. Um, but the reason why the polls were wrong wasn't that people were misreporting their preferences. People tell the truth to pollsters. The problem is that people who talk to pollsters at all are super weird. Yes. Uh, and that's, and that's, that's the problem. And when people talk about methods, the reason why pollsters couldn't adjust to this is because they just couldn't. Uh, the problem here is that there are these methods that these public pollsters have been using that really date back to the 1940s or even earlier. You know, that you just call you call a bunch of people. You know, now now there are cell phones, but still, you're just calling a bunch of random numbers. You're talking to them. You're asking them a very small set of questions. You're asking age, race, gender, education, maybe number of people in the household, and then you take the response. You take those people and you you try to make them resemble the census only along those like five or six questions, and then you report the results. And that, those methods used to work in the 1940s when response rates were really high. In the 1940s, response rates were something like 80%. And the reason is that the world was, you know, a lot more dull back then. The phone would ring and someone would say, oh, my God, a researcher is interested in my views and contemporary events. And they'd stop what they're doing and they'd call. But now response rates are something like 1%. Uh, and in that world, polling only works if, under the assumption that the people who answer the phone are the same as the people who don't once you control for the certain number of things, what, once you control for what you wait for. And it used to be, if you're comparing who's responding and who's not at an 80% response rate, then age and race and gender and you know whatever is enough. But now you need a much richer set of covariates in order to solve for these things, of, of variables. So, and uh, it's no longer true that uh, with response rates so low, if Democrats start answering the phone at a 3% higher rate, that will just make your poll wrong. And not, not even 3%, a 1.6 versus 1.1 response rate is enough to bias your polls by two or three points. So so there you go. So let's talk about, um, well, let's talk about one of the ways that, uh, well, actually, Betsy Kaplan, our producer, makes me want, makes, uh, tells me she wants to make sure that we convey what we mean when we say that people who answer polls are weird. In other words, what you're saying in that answer is that the percentage of people who are willing to press pause and stop watching Queen's Gambit or whatever they're doing, uh, you know, and put down their spatula in the kitchen and, and talk at length, this is just such a non-representative and small sliver of the population that it's hard to, to kind of make it more heterogeneous and more representative because the sheer activity is kind of an outlier. That's exactly right. And the way in which they're unrepresentative, I think is really interesting. You know, weird, I don't want to give a negative connotation. <laughs> you know, we've seen that on average, we've done personality tests. People who answer surveys are a lot more agreeable they're nicer uh, they're, uh, than the overall population, which makes sense if you think about what's happening. One of the really important parts of my research is it turns out that uh, people who 
answer uh, surveys are a lot more likely to agree with the statement that people can generally be trusted. Uh, people in general, only 30% of the US population agree with the sentence that people can generally be trusted. But the people who say yes to that are more than five times more likely to answer surveys than the people who say no. And when you look at the 2016 polling this, you know, we think that that was a really big part of it. That among people who have trust in institutions and trust in the world around them, that group among non-college educated whites swung toward Clinton. But the non-college educated whites who say that people can't be trusted, they swung heavily toward Trump. It's a group that voted for Obama at reasonable rates and then decided to switch over and not vote for Clinton. And we didn't see that coming because we didn't talk to them. They didn't pick up the phone. And the problem there is that that's a within education gap. You can't solve that by waiting for education. It wasn't that there weren't enough non-college educated whites. It's that we were talking to the wrong non-college educated whites. And there are other ways you can express this in terms of occupational divides. You know, people who are truck drivers versus people who are receptionists or people who work in offices versus retail. Uh, and those are things that can easily be captured just by, you know, looking at education. All right, I'm going to play a, a, another movie clip. This is not from Michael Clayton. This is from The Godfather. Uh, Michael Corleone is uh, in Cuba meeting with Hyman Roth. Uh, this is, uh, of course, before, just before the revolution. Uh, and here's their conversation. I saw an interesting thing happen today. A rebel was being arrested by the military police. And rather than be taken alive, he exploded a grenade he had hidden in his jacket. He killed himself, and he took a captain of the command with him. Right, Johnny? Those rebels know they're lunatics. Maybe so. But it occurred to me, the soldiers are paid to fight. The rebels aren't. What does that tell you? They can win. This country has had rebels for the last 50 years. It's in their blood. Believe me, I know. I've been coming here since the 20s. So uh, there's two reasons to play this. One of them is that both Hyman Roth and the American political commentariat misjudged Cubans. Um, but more than that, that's sort of, you know, I mean, what Michael Corleone is bringing up there is kind of anecdotal reporting. And David Shore, in, in 2016, before the election, during the primary season, when, in fact, Trump's rise to get the nomination uh, started to happen, a kind of fight broke out between data analysts led by Nate Silver once again, and sort of, I don't know what you'd call them, shoe leather reporters <laughs> led by, in particular, Jim Rutenberg of the New York Times. Uh, and, and there was this kind of argument going on that was similar to that. And it was similar to Lund what Luntz said, too, which is Rutenberg was kind of effectively saying, you're going to miss that, you know, if you just rely on statistics and data all the time, you're going to miss that moment where the rebel explodes himself in order to take out a couple of officers. You're going to miss things that are, are really, really important. And and I don't think this debate ever got resolved. There was just a lot of nastiness going back and forth. But, you know, I mean, I, I thought the mistake was probably the either or quality of it as opposed to both and. But how do you make those two arms uh, of political journalism harmonize together so that they help each other? You know, I, I, this is something I think is really nice about the field of political polling is it's not just a math problem. You can write on a whiteboard, you know, this problem of non-response bias. But, you know, personally in my job, what I really like is everything you're doing is measuring people and the opinions of people. And it turns out 
what predicts uh, how people vote is like a really complicated interplay between you know race and gender and education and all these other factors. And I think it's really important to have a qualitative handle on things. If you go out to a Trump rally and you see, oh man, all of these people, uh, they seem really angry, then you should really think, uh, what is it that I could be getting wrong? What variables am I not capturing? And that's something that I, I think that's the di industry, that's the direction the industry has to go, not to be too technical, but the answer to this is that we have to start controlling for a much wider set of things than we have in the past. You know, attitudes towards social trust, you know, maybe attitudes toward corporal punishment, whether or not you've traveled abroad or whether or not you have a passport. And what we decide to control for has to be guided by this subjective understanding of the world and guided by talking to people. I think it's absolutely true that you can't do quantitative research in this field without having a knowledge of people because people are ultimately what we're studying. All right, we have to stop there, but you're a terrific guest. I have like 20 more questions I would love to ask you. Uh, another time, perhaps David Shore is an independent data analyst who formerly worked for the 2012 Obama campaign and civic analyst and analytics. I can't talk at all today for some reason. We will be back. First of all, thank you, David Shore. And second of all, we will be back after this. Questions and I'll tell you no lies. Ask me no questions and there'll be no goodbye. No goodbye. No goodbye. No goodbye. No So polling and opinion research is part of what we think of in the most broad sense uh, as science. And particularly after World War II, we were in love with our ability to use new technologies and computers, uh, I mean sort of nascent computers, uh, to analyze stuff and figure out stuff. And we had spectrographic uh, analysis and chroma gas chromatography. We were smarter than we used to be. And opinion research, I think, fit into that narrative. There is a sense that this is something we can figure out. We can figure out what people think. Uh, and periodically, we, we have occasion to wonder whether that's true or not. And I think this is one of those times. David Greenberg is joining us, professor of history and of journalism and media studies at Rutgers University, a contributing writer to Politico magazine, where he wrote about exactly this and about the um, history uh, of all this. David Greenberg, welcome to our conversation. Thanks. Good to be with you. So, um, so yes, um, you know, particularly after 08 and 2012, uh, in particular, Nate Silver with his, uh, his new tech, fairly new technique anyway, uh, of developing a model which ingests uh, and, and automatically weights new data, new information, new variables. I mean, it really got to be lionized just because he was so incredibly accurate in 08 and, and 2012, and people turned into really kind of fans 
fanboys and fangirls, right? They were, and they were refreshing his page over and over to see if anything had changed in the last five minutes. You write that this isn't really a new phenomenon. We've had other opinion research rock stars in the past, particularly George Gallup. So tell us more. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, George Gallup, whose name people still know because it's become synonymous, you know, practically literally with polling. Um, in 1936, um, the Literary Digest, a magazine, uh, was the reigning expert on presidential polling. And it had called the last however many uh, presidential races correctly. Um, and Gallup in 36 comes along and says, the Literary Digest has it all wrong. Their methods are wrong. And he, you know, in fact, Literary Digest was calling the 1936 race for Alf Landon, who ended up winning two states. And Gallup got it not perfect, but much closer to the mark. So he sort of became the new hero and he was very good at self-promoting. His name on the Gallup polls was everywhere. But then um, in a story many listeners may know, in 1948, um, George Gallup, along with the other top pollsters of his day, uh, Roper and Crossley, um, they all called the 1948 presidential election for uh, Tom Dewey, who was the Republican challenger to Harry Truman, the incumbent. And we all know that uh, Chicago Tribune newspaper headline, Dewey Defeats Truman, which went to press before the returns were fully counted. Uh, so a lot of people, Gallup and a lot most reporters uh, had egg on their face. They trusted too much in that polling. And, you know, Gallup went on to still enjoy quite a career. But, uh, you know, I heard the last guest say, oh, you know, back in the 40s, polling was much more reliable. These methods used to work. Uh, not, not really. They didn't work so well in 1948. And over the years, we've seen this happen again and again. The, the guy who's spot on one year is wider the mark the next year. It's almost itself like an iron law. Right. I mean, Gallup misjudged more elections than that one uh, over that period of time. Sure. It, it's probably, I feel, uh, a weight as a Connecticut resident to mention the fact that Elmo and Bud Roper, father and son, were a little bit more... I don't know. Is honest the right word? Maybe a little bit more humble about this in kind of a funny way. Actually, in 48, Elmo Roper equated polling to, quote, a stunt like balancing cocktail glasses on top of each other or tearing a telephone book in two. It's impressive. It has a certain fascination, but it tells us very little that we wouldn't find out, even if poll taking had never been invent uh, invented. And Bud Roper, his son, talking about that whole likely voter question, one of the many problems that pollsters have to solve is not just what people think or say, but whether those people are good or representative of the true electorate that's going to come out and actually cast votes. And he said it was more art than science. He even told the American Association for Public Opinion Research that uh, it's a good deal more than half. Uh, is art and correspondingly mm -hmm. less than half is science. So not everybody sort of participated in the hyper scientific hype, but still, uh, David, I think the, the ethos of polling is we we're smart. We can figure it out. If we're wrong, we'll fix it. Um, I mean, is that kind of held true as an attitude anyway, through the world of polling over the decades? I think that's probably correct. Obviously, polling has persisted. There's a great market for it, both among regular consumers like you and me who hit refresh on 
538, you know, every hour in the weeks running up to election day, but also among businesses, among campaigns. I mean, it's it's a lucrative business. I don't mean to say it's it's mercenary. They they genuinely believe that they are getting uh, increasingly refined in their accuracy. Uh, and I don't mean to sort of dismiss the value of polling altogether. Obviously, there is a sort of general accuracy and there are certain purposes for which it seems to work pretty well. Um, but if you go back through the history, um, particularly of predictive polling, who's, who's going to win, say, the presidential election, you'll find polling failures, um, you know, just as often as you'll find pollsters hitting the mark. There's a wonderful new book out by uh, a historian named Joe Campbell, uh, W. Joseph Campbell, called Lost in a Gallop. Goes for presidential failures, uh, you know, from one cycle to the next. Um, so the notion that it's merely a matter of tweaking the method um, should, should make us suspicious. Um, Lindsay Rogers, who I wrote about in this political Politico article, was a political scientist uh, who in the 1940s wrote a book called The Pollsters that really took on Gallup. And one of the things he suggests is political science at that point was moving toward this kind of cult of science and prizing methodology instead of what we might call insight. And by kind of worshiping the gods of method or methodology over human insight, um, they were going to miss something. Uh, they, they were going to miss a lot. And yes, polls are useful. There's something, you know, that should be consulted, but they shouldn't be taken as an oracle. They should be mixed in with lots of other uh, data, uh, sources of information, um, you know, ways of looking at the world. And, and, and that gives us a much fuller picture of how people think, how people vote, uh, and, and the other questions we want to answer. And I assume also Lindsay Rogers would say that, I mean, I gave the example at the beginning, you know, James Comey eventually confessed that one of the reasons he was willing to go public uh, with a, 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 a 11th hour problem mm -hmm. uh, about Hillary Clinton was he thought she had it all locked up. He was reading the same polling uh, we were. Uh, Edward Snowden in that election tweeted to millions of followers that this was an unusually safe cycle in which to vote for a third party candidate uh, that, you know, once again, kind of implying, well, we know Clinton will um, win by a, a wide margin. Now, you don't know how much these kinds of decisions influence outcomes, but they don't not influence outcomes at all. And these are decisions in which outside actors use polling to do things that can actually influence the ultimate event. I would imagine that would make Rogers quite nervous. Yeah, absolutely. And they can make campaign uh, uh, officials uh, make bad decisions. For example, there now seems to be a consensus that the whole law and order issue, and we can set the merits of the issue aside or bracket it, uh, helped Donald Trump and accounted for the tighter showing uh, than anticipated. Well, at the time, um, everybody said, hey, look, uh, after Kenosha, after Portland, doesn't seem to be hurting Biden in the polls. So maybe we shouldn't worry about it. Maybe we're not in 1968 anymore. Now, maybe that was 
a false signal that the Biden campaign took. And maybe had they hit back harder and said, look, we're not a party of lawlessness and defund the police and really gone all out to make that clear. Um, maybe that would have been wise. I, I'm just speculating here. But polling can send you wrong signals, can tell you the strategy you're doing, you're following is wise when it's foolish or that it's foolish when it's wise. It can motivate the opposition. It's a moving target. I mean, that's another thing that Lindsey Rogers pointed out. Public opinion is not fixed like mass or distance or other things that science purports to measure. It only exists when you start trying to measure it through these questions. So it's it's like Quicksilver. It's, it, it's much more elusive than the language of science that Gallup draped it in uh, would have you believe. So one of the modern Lindsay Rogers is, well, actually, let's let's look at sort of two uh, legs on the same body. W- one of the legs on that body is a conservative critique of polling now, almost a conspiracy, uh, if not a conspiracy theory, uh, saying, look, they, whoever they are, didn't want Republicans to come out and vote. So they said it was a lost cause. Um, obviously, this doesn't track very well with the results uh, of this U.S. Senate and congressional elections. It doesn't seem right. as though people were scared away. But then the other argument is maybe some, summed up by Zeynep Tufeki. I may be saying her last name wrong, uh, academic and commentator writing in The New York Times, just saying, you know what, it's just not the science isn't as good as they say it is. We are blinded by science. We should just be relying on this stuff a hell of a lot less and reporting on it less obsessively. It's just not good for democracy that we think we've got this down to a bunch of numbers. What's your reaction to either of those? Yeah, well, I think mine is rather the same as yours. I I, I think it's silly to imagine that these pollsters are part of some kind of liberal plot to suppress conservative turnout. Uh, never mind that there are conservative pollsters out there as well. I, I do tend to agree with Zainab, um, who I, I know a little bit. Um, you know, there's about 25 years ago, I remember, I was a young journalist in Washington and at the Washington Post. And I remember they promised they were never going to put a poll on the front page of the newspaper again. Uh, I don't know how long that lasted. In the years since, we have so many polls, like there's, you know, multiples larger, you know, there's a sheer volume of them. They're on the front page, they're hype, they're all over Twitter. Um, So even though we may know as people who comment on the news, whether journalists or historians or radio hosts, we may know that the polls only tell us a little bit, the, the temptation to raise them up to this lofty status is is really hard to resist. And I think we kind of do it despite our better judgment. Um, a lot of a lot of reporters just know this is gonna or editors know this is gonna get clicks or people are gonna talk about this poll or whatever. They're gonna get excited by it. And and yet they know it's it's just a poll. It's not, you know, no uh, the other thing to stress here is no one can foresee the future. You talk to economists, economists will tell you 99% of what we do has nothing to do with predicting the next quarter or the next year, yet that's 99% what we're asked about. Look at the stock market. I mean, 
even weather prediction is, you know, we're still not all that good at it. Uh, so this notion that we should be able to predict based on these polls, it, it's, a, it's a fallacy. All right. Uh, last question. And Betsy Kaplan says it better be quick or you and I are both going to be in a lot of trouble. Um, but, you know, I was looking around for um, a clip that we could play that would show TV journalists o- overstating the polls or, or overemphasizing Biden's lead or whatever. And I could have found one. But the first two things I looked at just searching around, I saw Steve Kornacki right before the election. He's going over the state polls and he's actually sort of saying, look, this is how Trump could actually win. In, he, this is how he could reverse Florida. He's going state by state in a very Steve Kornacki way, you know, mm-hmm. and, and just saying, I mean, he's kind of doing about as good a job as you could expect a journalist to do without really, really nailing down what some of the polling problems were going to turn out to be. And the next thing I pulled up was a CNBC thing where the guest came on and said, you know, we know polls are are often very unreliable, you know, and here's what the markets are saying right now. And and I thought, I mean, are are we as bad at reporting on polls, we journalists, as we think we are? I mean, I know we're part of the problem, but (laughs) in a brief uh, answer, how how big a problem are we, the journalists? Look, I mean, I think Kornacki and and John King on CNN are actually both really good at qualifying things, explaining the limits of what the numbers tell us. In some ways, you might say it's a kind of collective failure on the journalist's part. Any individual journalist might do a good job at reminding us of the limitations of these instruments, but collectively, we all get caught up in it, and it's, it creates a sort of shared mindset, you know, blue wave, Biden landslide, uh, whatever it might be. Um, and, and, and it's sort of in that sort of shared, you know, euphoria or excitement, I think, that uh, the nuance and uh, the attention to the limitations of polls can get lost. Perfect answer. Thank you so much for this great conversation. Uh, I very much enjoyed it. Uh, We've been talking uh, to uh, one of our two guests named David. This one's David Greenberg, professor of history and journalism and media studies at Rutgers University. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about the thing that was probably the most gotten wrong, and that was the Latino vote. And if you pick one of each of those types of people and figure out what their opinions are, can then use your mathematical skills to figure out what everybody in the world is thinking. All right, we're back. Let me do the credits quickly. There's a 97% chance that Cat Pastor will do a fabulous job on any given day of engineering uh, this show from the WNPR studios, uh, giving uh, Betsy Kaplan and me a 7 out of 13 chance of being able to stay home uh, and work remotely. Uh, Betsy Kaplan, senior producer and producer of this episode. All right, let's move on. Uh, As I said before, uh, the Latino or Latinx uh, vote was, uh, I think, the thing that was probably the most significantly misjudged statistically in the 2020 cycle. Uh, let's try to find out why. Here to help us, uh, Aralise Hernandez covers the U.S. southern border immigration in Texas for The Washington Post. Welcome to our conversation. Thanks for having me. So, um, so, so many questions, but is there some kind of overarching way to frame what, what happened? What, was the, what caused the disparity between the numbers and the truth on the ground? 
Well, like, let's be, let's be clear. There really is no such thing as a Latino vote. They are, there are millions of Latinos who vote and they should be seen that way. I think the, the efforts to, you know, place this diverse and, and, you know, multifaceted group in one block is, is really at the heart of, of these assumptions that, that were frankly wrong. So, I mean, let me just run through some theories and you can either pump them up or shoot them down. Um, so one theory is, well, you know, immigration was really, you know, on the top uh, burner in 2016. It was just sort of in every debate, every commercial, and, and it wasn't as big an issue this time. That might uh, have caused Latinos to fear Trump less or be interested in Biden less. Uh, up or down on that one? I mean, that's an interesting theory, but I think there's been survey after survey of Latino voters to show that immigration is not a top issue or a number one issue. That is healthcare and education and these other issues that all Americans care about are higher up that scale. Immigration is a part of it, but, um, you know, that's the first thing. Right. And secondly, the fact that, you know, Trump wasn't talking about it in the same way. I'm not sure I've that because it's sort of it was central to his campaign in 2016 and I you know it was a part of this campaign too maybe he wasn't talking as loudly about it but I'm not sure uh, without like data can, can we say that that was the, the you know the factor so there there is a sense I think uh and it's a it's top of mind these days that Democrats take or took the Latino vote for granted. And maybe in the way that you're suggesting too, thinking that they vote as a block, that there's uh, two or three key issues that you can highlight. Maybe you don't even need to go talk to them. You've already got them. Um, Comment on that a little bit. Yeah, no, I think it was something that came uh, through illustratively in in some parts of Texas, right? Uh, Let's be clear from the outset. Uh, there was a surge in new Latino voters and new registrations, and those have, those folks overwhelmingly voted for for Biden nationwide. There were these places across the country that presented these interesting, you know, n- dynamics. Right, one of those places is South Texas and communities along the border. Um, you know, in those places, uh, you know, that that's a different experience than say even San Antonio or Dallas or uh, your Houston. Some of these bigger places, the Latinos who live there who are largely for the most part, Mexican-American, even amongst their own communities, they're very different. You have folks who've been there since before this was the United States, before it was Texas, um, and who can trace their lineages back to, you know, centuries, right? And then you have folks who are more newcomers who, uh, you know, might have gotten naturalized in, in the last five years. So it's it's just this idea that there's so much divergence in and diversity in this community that to try and, and put them all together in one place or, or one frame of thinking is is really difficult and ignores a lot of nuance. So Miami-Dade, as you know, went from 29, plus 29 Democratic in 2016 to plus seven Democratic this time, 22 points. That's a huge swing. And, and I, I think in your reporting, there's a suggestion that, you know, door knocking was a little bit suppressed this time because of COVID and especially, especially among Democrats. Was the mistake not going and talking to the voters and finding out exactly what was on their minds? If there was one single mistake, right, you also had the influence of misinformation and disinformation, right? That was very virulent, uh, you know, in in those communities. The the reporting that I've, you know, that my newspaper has done and, and other newspaper has done have looked at, you know, Democrats generally did not invest in in the ways that they could have, you know 
if you ask Secretary, former uh, HUD Secretary Julian Castro, right, he'll tell you that this is always a matter of engagement. Right? This is an issue of engagement. If you don't engage voters, if you don't talk to them directly, if you don't try to convince them or give them an alternative to you know the rhetoric that's out there, um, it's very difficult to earn those votes. So there's a sense of uh, if you're not listening to us, why should we vote for you? Yeah, and connecting, you know, their personal experiences to those who are in power. Uh, again, my my area of expertise, or well, I don't really have expertise on it, but my reporting yes, is mostly in South Texas. And what I heard from people, what they told me is that, you know, these are these are folks who've been voting for Democrats for a long time. Now, clear. Democrats down ballots did, did still did well, but you know, in their lives have not changed all that much in the time that Democrats have been in power in these these communities in South Texas. Therefore, you know, when someone else comes along, and this was largely grassroots, the Trump campaign did not actively campaign in, in South Texas. You know, it was state Republicans and local Republicans and some grassroots work that sort of showed some of those gains for uh, the president. But when you ask them, it's like, you know, they're disaffected. They're, they don't see a connection between those who have power and their own lives and, and, and improvement. If, and if the other guy is offering, you know, hey, I'm going to make sure that your kids have means and that you can send them to school and, you know, they can get to college and there's opportunity for you. Well, that's the person they're going to go with. We're going to have to stop there. I have zillions of more things I'd love to talk to you about, uh, about your area of expertise. But uh, Arlise Hernandez, thank you so much for your time today. Arlise Hernandez covers the U.S. southern border, immigration and Texas for The Washington Post. And that is to her area of expertise. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Okay, so we're done. Although, see, I love talking about polling. And I could do another hour on this. But I doubt you could listen to another hour of me doing another hour of this. In fact... I think 73.1% of you do not want to hear me do that. So what I'm trying to say is I'm trying to tell you it's not gonna come out like I want to say it Cause I know you'll only change it Say it You don't know me You don't know me at all You don't know me You don't know me